I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Untold Swamp Kings. There's nothing like the locker room. There's nothing like a huddle. I want them to embrace the heart, embrace the hurt, embrace the pain, embrace the brotherhood. Today, we're talking to director Catherine English. College football is life in Florida. Enter Urban Meyer, the Florida Gators' demanding new head coach. His take-no-prisoners style breeds a string of legendary victories, but also unrelenting drama that ripples well beyond the locker room. Drilling down on some of the Gators' biggest wins and losses, Untold Swamp Kings zooms in on each turbulent year of Meyer's reign, tackles the challenging sides of his leadership, and explores the perils of being a star athlete at such a young age. You'd drive by the bank and they would have your name on it. Welcome, Tim Tebow. All this pressure and hype. It was hard. And I'm joined now by director Catherine English. Catherine, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. So I couldn't help but notice you have a lot of variety on your filmmaking resume. Can you talk about how you came to make a series about the Florida Gators and Urban Meyer? Yes. I mean, it uh, It perhaps wasn't the most obvious uh, series for me to do uh, on the face of it, but I've made a lot of series about men in the past. I've made a film about uh, two New York firehouses um, in the aftermath of uh, 9-11. Um, I've worked with British Army platoons behind enemy lines in Afghanistan, you know, and I, I kind of really like the idea of getting to know uh, people who maybe haven't always had a voice well. So I think it was a deliberate uh, decision on the part of the producers to to get someone who had no preconceptions, perhaps didn't know American football intimately uh, or at all in my case. And I came at it, as did the whole team. We came at it completely fresh and open-minded. And I think that's a really great way to start a project like this. I am so glad to hear that because as much as I know somewhat about football, I don't know going into this. I knew about Urban Meyer a little bit. The college football culture and the SEC culture is singular. And I went into this with a very similar sort of outsider point of view. Was your mission here to examine sort of what made the team winners in this period of time or what made the team tick inwardly? Because I sort of was like kind of getting both out of that. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, I mean, our our intention was to do both without a doubt. You know, what what really appealed to me was clearly there was a roller coaster sports story here in this wonderfully uh, succinct period of time between 2005 and to 2009. And I think uh, just to look at the facts of what happened during those years, two national titles and an almost national title in 2009, 
that was just an astonishing sort of story. And, you know, we were really interested to know what were the elements that sort of contributed to it. You had a a team that were kind of really down on their luck. They weren't covering themselves with glory in 2005. Gator Nation had had this incredible history and success during the 90s with Spurrier. That was long gone. Gator Nation were fed up. So it was kind of an interesting point to begin a a series anyway. Uh, Then uh, into this mix arrives Urban Meyer, who's, you know, relatively young then. We're talking like maybe 18 years ago now. Uh, He was quite untried. He had some really revolutionary methods and approaches in terms of training and play. And it was kind of an interesting question. What actually was that like for that team to have that coach come into their deep southern football team and kind of exact regime change? So that that was a kind of really interesting starting point uh, as a filmmaker. And I think that that's kind of what appealed to me. Well, we will definitely talk more about his methods. I I have questions about that. Um, I want to ask about the players, though, because you obviously have some very key players who were eager to talk about their time as Gators with Meyer at the University of Florida. What was it like approaching them to talk in this series? Were they eager to do it? Um, They were. The players were cautious. They really were. And I think they wanted to do it as a group. They wanted to make a decision either to collaborate with us or not. And ultimately, they did decide, thankfully, to collaborate. And it's such a privilege to hear from them. But I think winning their trust, you know, was hard. Filmmaking is always a collaboration. You know, we need them to trust us. And winning that trust took a little bit of a process. Uh, I remember one Zoom call, which, because I'm based in London, happened about three o'clock in the morning. And I had to join this call with about 20 players and try and explain to them <laughs> what we wow. were planning and how we were going to be approaching uh, the series and convince them that. This was an opportunity for them to tell their stories. There was no agenda. There was no preconceived idea about what we were doing, you know, and we wanted as many of them as wanted to participate. Hmm. Now, I think about this when I watch sports documentaries that it must be so incredibly exhilarating to interview athletes in particular who decades later can recall plays and games with the kind of emotion as if it happened Yesterday, (laughs) did it surprise you how clear and visceral and specific the details of these players' memories were about these things that happened like two and a half decades ago? Quite often, interviewees will give quite a sort of basic answer. But if you ask again and you keep asking, eventually you get down to the level of uh, sweat on the back of the person's neck or where the sun was in the sky when the ball flew over into their hands or what it felt like to score that particular touchdown or whatever. Third play of the game, Bradford, their quarterback, pumps to our sideline. See the ball in the air, I'm like, oh, I got to go get that. But then I look and I see the receiver. I could have easily went for the ball, but I didn't want the ball. I wanted him. I wanted to strike fear into their team. 
fear. It's such a, an amazing thing to, to hear. I, I felt that those interviews were amongst the best that I've ever done with anyone. I mean, I was blown away by how good their recall was and how entertaining and compelling their descriptions were of individual plays. They managed to kind of really put you in the middle of the action and and give give you a real sense of what it was like to to be playing a kind of gladiator sport. Uh, you know, normally we see it from the sidelines and we're looking in on this game, uh, but we're not, you know, in the players' heads, you know, standing with them at the edge of the tunnel about to run onto the field. They gave us all that. Um, so I want to get back to something we were talking about earlier, because this is something that was on my mind the entire time I was watching this. You know, Urban Meyer's coaching methods, you have players in the series telling stories about them. And I think depending on their points of view, retrospectively, their stories are brutal. Some of them talk about them with humor and with upside and how they developed as players. But they also say things like, quote, he wanted to understand what happens after he breaks you. He wanted to win. I want to win. I'll take the pull back, Dallas. And this is where I bought here. It wasn't about lifting weights. It was about mental toughness. He wanted to understand what happens after he breaks you. Are you going to just push through it? Or are you going to cry like a baby? You're going to quit. It is very hard as a viewer, especially when you're watching the footage, to forget that Myers is being, again, quote, unmerciful <laughs> with kids. And I'm wondering, is that something that was on your mind as well when you were making this film? That, you know, these are kids. They're somebody's kids and they are, in fact, kids. Yes. And I think that's something that one of that's a point that one of the players actually makes in, in the series, Carl Johnson speaks about that um and he's he's quite emotional about it it's it's clearly not our place to judge we we are you know interviewing as many as we can to find out what that experience was like and you know for sure there were players like Ryan Stamper who described those mat drill sessions as worse than being trained to go to Vietnam, he he said to me that they would uh, go back to their digs, their student accommodation, collapse on the floor for probably about two hours, unable to move. He'd quite frequently phone up his mom and say, I simply cannot stay in this program anymore. It's just so exhausting and so you know, and the footage bore, bore it out. We came across the footage that shows players fighting literally to the death on the, on the mats, players throwing up, players almost passing out. You know, these were sort of methods that can be, and in, by today's standards, are considered extreme, I think. So I do have a question about that footage. Who yeah. was filming the kids training in the locker room? Like, where did that footage come from? What was it intended for? And, and how did you how did you get your hands on it? So we we heard rumors about the existence of a box of tapes. 
you know, people kept talking about a box of tapes that was filmed during the time. Now, for a filmmaker, that is utter gold dust. So we kept uh, pursuing it, kept asking questions. Where are they? Nobody seemed to know. Eventually, after quite a long time, maybe four months, a box of 650 mini DV tapes turned up that covered the exact period that we were uh, filming. So from 2005 all the way to 2010, which was an unbelievable bonanza and a game changer. We don't jab, jab, jab and walk away. You go out there right now, they got them wobbling. Put it to them, bam, square in the fucking face. Knock them out and as Let's soon as go, you put them down, oh fucking punch them square yeah. in the Uh, we started logging the tapes, categorizing them, checking what year they were from, which was at times quite tricky. You know, it was a question of figuring out which players were in the images and then looking at the roster because they hadn't been catalogued. But what what they were was just an incredible, authentic record of the training, the weight room sessions, the you know, really famous sort of iconic Maya training, such as the Valentine Day Massacre. And there was another session that he used to run, the Midnight Lift. To keep to keep the kids from partying, he'd make them all come to the gym. And and, and it, one of my favorite moments in the whole series was Brandon Spike saying how much he hated that. Like he wasn't having it, he hated it. And you cut to Tim Tebow saying like, those were the best nights of my life. It yeah. was incredible. Yeah. Very different <laughs> characters in that locker room. Yeah, absolutely. So any sense of who was shooting who was shooting that tape? Like, um, it, what was it meant for? <laughs> it was a couple of uh, guys who were in the athletic program, a guy by the ah. name of Randy Mikens and another, another guy. And they... Our discovery was that they were literally not only shooting it randomly, they would shoot sometimes with two cameras on the sideline or two cameras in the locker room. So we could then start to cut around the scene. And I mean, it was an incredible bonus. It was really incredible because they talk about how, you know, Brandon Seiler, you know, he was already in the program when Meyer arrived. Meyer identified him as a leader and we see him physically become a leader in the gym. We hear that Brandon Spikes didn't like the workouts. We see him hating the workouts. We see the moment where he changes his mind in the gym. I can't imagine what it must have been like for you to see those stories come to life. Did you hear the stories first and then get the tapes? Or did you get the tapes and then ask the players to tell those stories? Good question, Rebecca. It was very much, uh, we heard the stories first. Incredible. And then absolutely incredible. Then it was a painstaking trawl through basically 650 to 700 hours of footage to try and find what we had that reflected that. But I mean, yes, you know, to your point about very young men training, the the scenes that were recorded, the close-ups of the faces of the guys when they're being pushed to do you know, to lift the weight they're lifting, to do the repeat um, bench presses and all the rest of it. And the and the whole atmosphere in the gym, it was really take no prisoners. No one was allowed to give up, you know, no matter what they were going through physically. 
Yeah. So after this one brutal loss, we do hear a player say that, you know, Urban Meyer hates losing more than most people love winning. (laughs) And um, what really strikes me, and we hear about it on that famous scene, that meeting he has with the players on the tarmac after their loss on the road on the airplane, is he tells this story, too. I mean, this isn't just the players telling this story, that he makes that speech and the loss is really about him. He's like, you are making me a loser. You aren't going to get me fired. Right, right. It was a tough, tough meeting. And I told him it's going to be a miserable time for everybody. And if you don't want to be here, we'll help you. Two players, he kicked off the team on the tarmac. They had to go out, you know, down the stairs and off the team. They was done. And I'm thinking about this... um, you know, they're talking about building a brotherhood. They're talking about building a team. But it's also him saying, like, this is about me. And it just really strikes me that that's like a very singular sporting culture, right? Like, is it a brotherhood if it's also about just, like, making the coach a winner? You know, did, did that really strike you as being, like, a unique sporting culture? Because that's not something you you hear coaches admit, you know. And, and in his contemporary interviews, he's not denying that that's what that is and was his attitude at the time. I don't know that they have to be mutually exclusive. Hmm. I don't think, you know, Maya caring about winning in that way means that a brotherhood doesn't also exist. Hmm. As as uh, Mullen said, losing was just not in his DNA. And he was in a really tricky situation by that stage because he'd lost, I think that was his third loss uh, in 2005. And that was going to be a career ender unless it he could turn turn the situation around. But I think the most telling insight into that particular event on the plane came from Dallas Baker. And he kind of describes how Urban Meyer said to them all, you know, I'm, I'm giving you everything I've got. I'm trying my hardest here. I'm trying to be that coach. And you guys are not giving your all. And I think that's their perspective on this. Yes, he used the throwaway line, you know, I'm not going to let you get me sacked. But underneath all that, what's what's the actual motivation? I think that's up to viewers to make their own decisions about. Well, maybe he was the coach for them, but there certainly was one player who I think was the player for Urban Meyer, and that's Tim Tebow. We can't talk about this era of the Gators without talking about Tebow. Can you talk about that recruitment of Tim Tebow and how it changed the course for the Gators during this period of time? I think what people say is that the spread offense might not have been able to be, you know, as successful as it was without Tim Tebow, if at all possible on any level. I mean, At the time, which is funny to remember now, but at the time, the spread offense was deemed to be unworkable in the SEC. They thought it was a gimmicky offense and it was never going to work. Urban Meyer, the minute he heard about Tim Tebow, who Gator fans were mentioning Tim Tebow for weeks, months even, from the very day he arrived, but uh, he didn't seek him out for a long time. But when he did finally watch him play, he thought, aha, this might be the the man who's going to make this, you know, uniquely new way of playing work. It was, it was a great, you know, friendship and union and coming together. I also think it was like almost like a, a meeting of minds and a meeting of hearts in a way, because Meyer is so hot, right? And Tebow is so 
steady. And so like he, you know, we only see one or two moments where he actually kind of explodes. I mean, his self-told origin story is is well known. He tells this miracle child story, but there is this little moment at the very beginning of the Tebow episode where his childhood baseball coach says he's supposed to have fun. And he's like, no. He says, okay, guys, now it doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It's only about having fun. And I'm like, What's this guy talking about? And they brought the hammer back in. Tim Tebow. Is this what America is all about? Because this sucks. Look at that. But he says it in this such a calm way. And I'm like, you're Urban Meyer's soulmate, man. <laughs> like, you guys belong together. Did you just sort of get a sense that this was a partnership that was meant to be, like, in many ways? Yeah, I did. I mean, they used to spend an enormous uh, amount of time together. So Tim was always the one who would hang around after practice or after the weight room. And he'd spend time with Urban and other coaches talking about the game or different plays. So he was committed in that total sense to their their journey to, to victory. And I think that's really striking. They they were uh, both very committed in that way, but I don't I don't necessarily think that they are exactly the same people. I mean, I think mm. you know he's so friendly with the guys as well, the players. He he loved competing. You know, with the likes of Brandon Siler, he identified the toughest player in the team, and made a beeline for him and was determined to, to not only lift as much as him, but try and beat him in the weight room. So there's a kind of universal interest from Tim in many directions, not just coach facing. Right, right. So after the team wins its first championship, uh, there is some trouble that kind of arises from that. Then at the following year, some of the players do start getting into some trouble off the field. And one of the things that we hear is that Urban Meyer makes this decision to no longer kick players off of the team when they get into trouble. Um, can you talk about that decision? You know, the lesson he took away, say, from cutting Avery Atkins and the consequences uh, that, that came from that? I mean, I can't really speak for Urban Meyer. I think that, you know, obviously he's come under criticism for not suspending players and he's come under criticism for suspending players. I think that our impression was that a lot of these young kids are literally in the spotlight. They are growing up in the spotlight and they mm -hmm. it's a very hard situation where allegations are escalated that sometimes are substantial and sometimes aren't substantial. And it's hard to navigate the truth behind specific instances. So can we talk about that? Because these kids were stars, right? We hear that, you know, college football in the South is huge, as we heard, and that the kids became celebrities on campus. They were kings of campus, you know, according to Dan Mullen. What did that look like in practical terms, like in 2006, 2007? They called it Gaines Vegas. The Gaines Vegas, yeah. Well, I think in 2007, after the the first national title win, it looked pretty crazy. Everywhere the players went in the state, there were free drinks, there were parties all the time. There were a lot of distractions and they 
they really enjoyed life <laughs> to the full, as you'd expect on one level, but it didn't really chime with the rigors of the football program. So I think there was a lot of friction. There were stories of players coming straight to the weight room from the club, grabbing 40 minutes sleep on the floor and then uh, going into a session. You know, it was an enjoyable time, I think, for them. But from the sort of coach's perspective, it was smacked, he said, of a entitled an entitled team that were, you know, all the new players were kind of resting on the the reputation of the the team. The 06 players, the new recruits like uh, Brandon James and Brandon Spikes were, you know, living it up, perhaps not setting the example they should by their own admission. <laughs> They've said that. Um, so it was a heavy mix. There's some interesting stories there. And we do actually hear players and journalists, you know, say that the football program is so influential in the community that sometimes when players got in trouble, uh, the football program had influence in helping, you know, cover up some of that trouble. What do you make of that? Is that a sense that you got from more than just one or two players and and one or two journalists? Do, Do you think that that's that was the case? I think it's really hard. We, you know, we got different messages from different people uh we we looked at the crimes and misdemeanor allegations uh, um in detail with journalistic rigor and sure there were some serious allegations in the mix there really were but there were also a lot of allegations that were either unsubstantiated or dropped and then it's a case of well how do you get to the truth of how they were dropped whether that was legitimate or whether that was interference. You know, some people talk about a lawyer that was employed to make things go away. Other people totally disagree with that. I think that we've done we've done our best to look into it in a in a in a kind of journalistically rigorous way. It's it's a very difficult situation where you have a university town, as you say, that is so centered around the sports and the athletes sort of as kids will do, as college kids Mm -hmm. will do across the whole country in any country. Occasionally there are hiccups. And I think that must be devastating for the coaches when when there's a game on Saturday, but equally they can't be seen to be condoning bad behavior or criminal behavior. That's right. Well, I couldn't help but notice um, that Aaron Hernandez only has a very short cameo in your series. You know, Tebow tells this very brief story about being with him when he gets into a fight in the restaurant. Is this because you felt like Hernandez's story has been well covered elsewhere? I don't know if I'd say it had been well covered, but it's been covered. Hmm. And I think the players from the beginning, did not want an over-focus on Aaron Hernandez. They're very protective of his memory and they are still very upset by everything that's happened. Um, He was a very loved player. Uh, He played very well for the team. Um, He looked up to the more senior members in the team and tried to be like them, tried to, you know, fit in, I think there's a lot of warmth still there. He's not around to tell his his story. So this this series is all about player testimony and all about hearing from the guys. And 
we're not going to start looking at things that happened after our period. There's, you know, it's just not relevant to us. So we were very much focused on the period of 2005 to 2010. And um, I, I kind of really, really definitely wanted to capture something of him, but there, mm-hmm. it wasn't necessary to foreground him more than that. So I want to talk about this one incredible epic moment in the documentary, the sports moment, this 2006 game against South Carolina, final seconds of the game. Gators are about to lose by a field goal and this defensive end, Jarvis Moss, blocks the kick with one finger. Usually I can't even look at stuff like that. I remember staring at the ground. I look up right at the last second. This is why people love college football, right? This is why these men love talking about this time at this place in this school. Yeah. And I mean, you you will know better than me whether the story that went into that one moment from all the players like, you know, Steve Harris, sort of not so well-known player who recognized that there was a gap in the defense or where the weak spot was that led to that incredible leap by Jarvis Moss. The fact that it was his ring finger, you know, the sound in the swamp. I think it's reportedly the loudest cheer that's ever been heard in the swamp today. One of them, the atmosphere and the emotion of that moment, that that's what's been so rewarding about making the series for sure. Moments like that. And I think the series is full of them. We just can't ever get away from them you know it's it, when we talk about a roller coaster sports story it really was roller coaster it's just one nail biting minute after another and it's it's great great fun at the end of the documentary we do see the players that you talked with at a lakeside reunion reminiscing about their time as gators what was that like bringing them all together what was that gathering like it was amazing hey James, what's up man it was a very humble setting, a beautiful lake in the middle of the countryside and, you know, far away from the glitzy trappings that some of them might frequent. And uh, it was just so special. They were like sitting around on a dock as the sun sat sharing stories about specific plays, uh, laughing together, teasing each other. It felt very genuine. And there was just really great moments between individuals, like particularly Brandon Spikes and Tim Tebow talked about what happened after the loss at Mississippi State in 2009. And I don't know that they'd ever spoken about that before, but that was genuinely lovely to sort of see. Well, Catherine English, the series is Untold Swamp Kings. Thank you so much for joining me to dig into it. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Catherine English. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. 
If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 